you would, turn in the Bible to James chapter 4. Thank you so much, Garth. Garth is the head of our personnel committee here. Garth, thank you for doing that and putting that together. Thank you to all of those that, that spoke and well beyond just those few people. Thank you uh, to the church for knowing what it means to love and support your pastors. It was just about two years ago that we switched up from a single pastor church leadership model here and went to plurality of elders or pastors, if you will. And uh, I cannot thank, and we cannot thank, and I hopefully you cannot think of any reason why that was not uh, such a good move. I am so thankful to serve alongside with uh, Matt and Josh Womble and, and Jake, and um, uh, we are thankful for how the Lord is working here. Uh, let's, let's be clear that we know that the goal is for us to be a worshiping church where more and more people are growing in their faith in Christ. And uh, I think that is happening, and the Lord is working uh, here. And so let's continue to serve him. And uh, you love us, and we love you, and watch what the Lord's Holy Spirit does through it, okay? Thank you all. Uh, James chapter 4, James just keeps coming with the hammers. He's dropped the hammer a couple times on us, and he will continue. And we're thankful for it. And here, James brings up the issue of friendship. Friendship is often really misunderstood, is it not? We think that because we know somebody, uh, that that means that we're friends, and we have really confused what it means to be uh, an acquaintance with what it means to be a friend. Facebook has us all confused on what it means to be a friend, somebody that you've never spent time with or talked to or looked at or dealt with anything that has any uh, depth to it, and we think that they are friends. Um, James brings up friendship here. When we start thinking of friendship, we must understand uh, honesty, openness, clarity, accountability, love, care, respect, being helpful, those, among many other things, are part of a real friendship. And I hope that you are a good friend. I know because in parenting, we talk all the time about needing good friends. Man, that's a big conversation in, in parenting, is it not? We all want our kids to have good friends. I don't hear many people talk about being a good friend. The conversation is always about their friends, and it's rarely about what kind of a friend are you. This is where James takes friendship today. James isn't going to blame everybody else, and James isn't going to even blame the world. James is going to drop the hammer on us for the friendship that we have with that system that we should not be friends with, the lost and dying demonic world that is under the rule of Satan. This is where James takes it, and it is a good word for us. Read with me, if you will, the first six verses in chapter 4. James chapter 4, the first six verses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to give you three points here this morning. Number one, passionately wrong. Passionately wrong. Number two, friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. And number three, grace to the humble. Passionately wrong, friendship with the world, and grace to the humble. For as wonderful as passion is, y'all, passion can be really, really wrong. If you've got passions for this lady who is such a, a beauty and makes you feel so special, but you should not have passion for her, then that passion is horrible. If you have a passion for money and you will go and get more at any cost, then that passion is not a good passion. Apparently, in James chapter 4, in this early church, remember James is writing to believers in these churches that are scattered, right? That's, what, that's the way the book of James begins. And so we know he's writing to believers. We know he's writing to churches. But apparently, there was a lot of fighting, that there was a lot of backbiting. There was a lot of insult and slander and not getting along in churches. Can we imagine that? What a sad thing it is to think that people say that the spirit of the living God lives inside of them, and yet we do not like each other. We cannot get along. What an indictment this is against the church, and this is what James is addressing. We see this, though, that there is often sin in the churches in the New Testament. Corinth deals with issues. Galatians deals with issues. Thessalonians deals with issues in these churches. And now here, James says that there are issues there. But in addressing them, James hits the nail on the head. He does. He talks about us being the problem. In verse 1, he asks these rhetorical questions. What's causing this? What's causing these quarrels and these fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And I know you know this to be true in your homes, and James just takes this step further and says, it's also the true in your churches. It's also the truth in your churches. There's fighting, and there's disagreement, and we can't get along, and there's all that sort of stuff. And James says, what's the real issue here? Isn't it what's going on inside of you? Can I let them be right? Can I be the bigger person? Do I have to have the last word these are the issues that are going on inside of us. He says it's a war inside of us. He said the passions inside of us are at war. And this becomes the problem with all of us because when you get a lot of fallen people together, a lot of sinful people together, a lot of people aren't gonna look to Christ and follow his ways. This is what happens. If you get a lot of uh, grumpy people together, you got a big grumpy mess. That's what happens. If you get a lot of defensive people together, right? You get a lot of defending, you get a lot of rude and unkind and people that say harsh and insulting things together. Then you get a lot of people who've been hurt and offended and insulted. And James is saying this is the situation. He goes further in verse two by saying, you desire and you do not have. There's things that you wish would happen. 
and they don't happen, and so it bothers you, and you get upset, and you can't handle it. It either is your way, or there is no other way. How often have we heard, if this doesn't happen, I'll go there somewhere else? We desire things, we don't get it, so he says we murder. Now, this is a crazy statement that James says, because does he really mean murder? Do, do churches really come to blows and people get killed over it? I've never heard of it. It's never happened here since I've been here. Or could he be meaning what Jesus says, that when you hate somebody in your heart and when you're just angry, it's the same as committing murder? Maybe that's what he means. I don't know. I mean, how bad do church fights get sometimes? Have you ever heard of somebody punching somebody over, over a church fight? Have you ever heard of somebody pulling out a gun? James, writing in the first century, says, your desires aren't met, and so you murder inside the church setting. He says, you covet and you cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. And you know what covet is, because it's the last commandment, do not covet. It means you are desiring things that you cannot have. It, it stems from jealousy. It takes jealousy a step further and longs for things that they cannot have. You want that person's wife. You want that person's children. You want that person's job. You want that person's smile or happiness. You want that person's something, and you cannot handle the situation you're in, and so you will go to whatever length. That's what this is about, coveting, and you cannot, you cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. And then, just as a further point that he's talking to believers and to a church, he, he goes into their prayers about it. At least they're praying about it, one might think. But he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And James says, hey, part of the problem here." is because you will not pray about it or you are not praying about it. And we know this to be so true. This is the way our sinful lives work. If we know it is a sinful flaw inside of us, then we don't want to pray about it. Because prayer is a, is a humbling ourselves before God. It is a, it is a bowing of the knee, a bowing of the knee and a, and a bowing of the the mind and the heart and surrendering our faith and saying, God, you reign and God, you're in charge and God, you're good and, and all of that. And then going to him. It is an acknowledging of God as the one who reigns. We recognize him as that. And then we come to him humbly and make our requests made known to God. And so like all of us, there are things that we have not prayed about yet because the pride and sinfulness surrounding those issues witnesses to us that it's not right. And so there are things in our lives that we are trying to handle with common sense or wisdom or truth without bringing it to prayer. And James just calls them out for that. The reason why that hasn't changed for you, the reason why that you haven't received what you desire, the reason why that passion hasn't been fulfilled is because you have not prayed about it. But undoubtedly, they speak up and say, well, well, we have prayed about it a little bit. So the next statement he says is, well, you pray wrongly about it. Verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Church, we ought to be the first ones to know that prayer is not us asking God to bow down to us who we believe to be God. Prayer is submitting yourself to God. Prayer is believing that God knows best. 
Prayer is humbling ourselves and aligning ourselves with what God desires. It is saying, God, your will be done. I'm going to tell you the things that are on my heart and the burdens, the things that you have asked me to bring to you, and I'm going to bring those to you, God. And because you're my good Father in heaven, I'm going to believe that however you answer this is what you want to happen in my life. I'm going to trust you with that. But James is able to say here that there are some issues in our lives because we have not prayed about them, and there are some issues in our lives because we've prayed about them wrongly. And so point number one is that you've got a passionate church that is passionately wrong. Folks, we are to be those who live humble lives, surrendered to our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the most humble serving human being ever. And Jesus' words to us in John 13 is that no servant is greater than his master. Jesus knew how to hold his tongue. Jesus knew how to uh, speak gracious, kind words in settings. Jesus knew how to make situations better, and we are to be about, about that. You remember last week, we talked about uh, being peacemakers, and peacemakers are those who will so create a culture of peace that then they will harvest righteousness. That peacemakers can so create an environment of peace because they are so submitted to God and his ways that what becomes of it is, is a healthy soil where good, godly, right, true things can grow out of it. Look at chapter 3, verse 18, the verse right before this. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what's James saying? He's saying, yes, there's a lot of drama in life. Yes, there are some contentious people. Yes, there is often strife in this life, even in church life. Well, where'd it come from? Whose fault is it? And James says, it's yours. It's what you're fighting against on the inside. You remember, it was either last week or two weeks ago that I told y'all I started off by, by saying I hit my head on the door of the car and I hit my foot on the bed and I was looking for somebody to blame. You remember that? And I wanted so badly to find somebody else to blame so that it would not be my fault. The reality was, it, it was my fault. Church, you would do so well to learn that before you find a wicked joy and it being everybody else's problem, to take a step back, be slow to speak, like he said in chapter one. Go find the mirror, look in it. Then go find the closet, kneel in it, and say, God, go to work on me. Been doing a lot of premarital counseling lately as we've had a lot of weddings. And one of the big principles that we teach in premarital counseling is that before you go to work on any issue, you first ask, how have I been the issue? There are issues in marriage at times, and there are times when it's his fault or her fault. Before you go casting stones or pointing the finger or calling people out or trying to get somebody to change, you need to approach it with, how have I contributed to this? What have I done that maybe made them act that way? What have I done that made them feel that way? 
What have I done that's caused somebody to have that attitude or that response or, or that view or that opinion? If the church would embrace this, like Garth just mentioned a few minutes ago, that we would be a good church to you, that you would be a good church to us, that all of us here would be thinking, how can I be a good church to them? Then we would start to get our passions in the right place. You know, often over the years, we've heard conversations, thankfully nothing big, but we've heard conversations come up about what type of songs should we sing in church, right? Church music, should it be old stuff or new stuff? Should it be loud stuff or not loud stuff? Should it be that instrument or that instrument or some of these instruments, right? And people get into those conversations, don't they? And we get into those conversations, you'll hear somebody say, man, well, yeah, but man, I just love it. When it really gets amped up and we get to moving and it gets some clapping in there. I like it when it gets loud. And somebody's like, yeah, but man, I grew up singing those old songs and there's a lot of truth to those. There's a lot of good lyrics in those and we need to sing that. And we get into all of this. I said, I said, I said, you know what I heard somebody say one time? What if you came to church desiring for that person's favorite song to be sung? What if you came to church desiring for that person's favorite song to be sung? Hey, check this out. We didn't sing everybody's favorite song today, did we? No. But I hope by the grace of God, we may be saying somebody's. Imagine how different the mindset is when you don't come thinking, I'm going to get mine. And you come thinking, I hope they enjoyed it. I hope they were built up. I hope they were loved. I hope they were strengthened. Listen, we've all got passions. And those passions work themselves out. We can get passionate over things. Get passionate over sports. Passionate over money. Passionate over work. Passionate over politics. But sometimes we can be passionately wrong. Sometimes we need to admit what he's saying here. What's causing all this? And it's the wrestling and the unsettling going on inside of you. If it's true that the Lord Jesus reigns and he is the prince of peace and him coming to live inside of you gives you a peace that surpasses all understanding, then let's ask God to get our passions in line with him. Let's not be passionately wrong how we live out our lives and how we do church. So that's just his intro, passionately wrong. From there, he gets more serious. Look at verse four. He says in verse four, you adulterous people. And I know that we don't talk this way. It sounds too harsh, but the Bible does. And James isn't the only one to do this. James isn't the only one in the New Testament to do this. Jesus does this himself. The Old Testament is full of this. The prophets did this. If you're unfaithful, if you're a harlot, if you are um, 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 sexually immoral spiritually, the Bible does not hesitate to call you out and say you are what you are. You're supposed to only sleep in that bed but you've been sleeping in somebody else's bed, spiritually. And boy, I tell you what, church people will get a lot more worked up over adultery over the bed if somebody dare called it out than they would over adultery spiritually. And that's a shame. That's a shame. Imagine what would happen 
What would be the fallout, okay, if y'all found out that I've been sleeping with somebody else? These kids don't even know what it means. All you people here just said those nice words. John, thank you for that. Imagine how disruptive that would be. And Jesus uses the same language to say that believers are often that way toward God. We ought to be more bothered by adultery against God than we are adultery in our own lives. And adultery in our own lives should bother us. But this is the language that he uses. And from there, he leads into friendship. Verse four says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world is bad. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is enemy with God. Those are equal. We are to be people who hate the world's ways, hate the things that the world loves, and we are to be people who love the truth. Now, let me make a quick note right here, okay? This is not saying that you should not be friends with people in the world. There's a big difference. We are not gonna be able to run and hide from the world, okay? You're gonna have to have and you should have relationships with people in the world. What this is meaning is the world system where Satan reigns and where sin is adored, right? And disobedience thrives, right? And lawlessness is celebrated, right? The world system of not worshiping God is to be hated by us and friendship with that is the problem. That is enemy, is being an enemy to God. There is enmity there. And James is serious about this, and this really, becomes, this, this really becomes James's entire issue in the book of James, that he has these believers who are not living like believers. You remember chapter one, when he got so worked up over widows and orphans and pure and undefiled religion before the Father is that you keep yourself unstained before the world, right? Not polluted by the world. You remember this? This is what James is talking about all the time. Then in chapter two, James goes all in on, you say you believe in him, but you don't try to obey with your life. Your life is full of disobedience, and you're saying that the power of God has changed you. Faith without those works of obedience is a dead faith. This is what James is always talking about. You remember with James in chapter three, when he went off on the tongue, right? And he said that there is no way that you get fresh water and salt water out of the same thing. He said there is no way that this mouth can curse people and praise God. There's no way. This is what James is always, always talking about. One commentator says, James's reference to friendship with the world closely parallels a phrase employed by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when he says that people are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It also sounds like John in 1 John chapter 2, when he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We are then in touch with a broad tradition, meaning lots of people have preached this. The world here assumes its semantic function as the forces and elements opposed to God, or more precisely, listen to this, the whole complex of human institutions, values, and traditions, listen, that knowingly or unwittingly are arrayed against God. 
God has told us who he is. He has told us what he's like. He's told us what he's for. He's told us what he's against. He's told us what he loves. He's told us what he hates. And when we believe in him, we get those same passions. We get those same desires. We get those same loves. Friendship with the world is against God. Now, one commentator points out that this is speaking to the passions within their church community. That there was a desire among those Christians to seek status and prestige as their surrounding culture defined it. This sounds like today, possibly, that what the world celebrates, we want to be recognized by. That the, what the world rewards and awards and appreciates and honors are things that we go after so that we get their recognition. James says this is a problem. In this pursuit, they showed favoritism and displayed an unwillingness to understand the law of love, which James often talks about. And therefore, they show themselves opposed to God. James wants us to realize what it means to be a good friend. And earlier I pointed out that this comes up in parenting all the time. We often talk about the friends that our kids have more than the friend that our kid is. And it reminds me of many, many times I've had to have the conversation in, in my home or had to have the conversation back when I was doing youth ministry or kids ministry. And it would somewhat conclude like this. You know, the best way to make a friend is to be a friend. I hope you've heard that before. The best way to make a friend is to be a friend. If you're feeling like you don't have any friends, perhaps pick out anybody in the world. Somebody walking by your house, somebody sitting here in a pew, somebody down here at the playground tomorrow. If you come by any time tomorrow, there will be some people out here on the playground. Our playground is full of people all day, every day. If you don't have any friends, come down here and be a friend. And you know what you'll have before long? Friends. The best way to make friends is to be a friend. But that works in the wrong direction too. For if you're becoming a friend with the world, if you're becoming a friend of things that we should not be friends with, then there's a problem. And James has been playing on this. Listen to this. Listen to James's powerful and graphic comparing and contrasting. Earthly wisdom or heavenly wisdom? Self-interest or the law of love? Self-exaltation or exaltation of God? Resist the devil, come near to God. Wash your hands, purify your hearts. Grieve and mourn, turn joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, God will lift you up. The seriousness of the matter is confirmed in the harsh vocabulary that James is using. In chapter four, he says you kill. In chapter four, he says you adulterous people. In chapter four, he says you're an enemy of God. And in chapter four, he says you are sinners. It's dangerous to preach through the Bible like this because you get to these hard, heavy passages. We've got to walk through it. The Bible teaches us to teach the whole Bible. But we have a warning here to not be friends with the world. 
One of the things that comes up, though, when we start talking about friendship is we must admit that we fail at times to acknowledge what is a good friend. And there are times in life where we find ourselves in a relationship, friendship, if you will, I wanna be cautious in calling it a friendship, relationship, though, that is not good for us. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've seen uh, a young man trying so hard to fit in and he's hanging out with people that don't even like him. Y'all have seen that too. They want so badly to fit in somewhere that they're hanging out with people that don't like him. Kids are hanging out with kids that make fun of them all the time because nobody's taught them what it looks like to be a friend. I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed relationships where it's just a horrible thing. They don't like each other. They cheat on each other. They insult each other. They don't build each other up. Unfaithfulness on this side, unfaithfulness on this side, hurt and pain all the way over. Their self-image is all the way to the floor because nobody builds anybody up. Nobody sacrifices for each other in this relationship. They use each other for sex. They abuse each other for their finances. It's an ugly situation, and they think they're in love. They're not. It's not a good relationship. Nobody has any idea what love is in a situation like that. Love lays down its life for the other. And friendship includes that. And so part of the problem, we find ourselves being friends with things that we should not be friends with. And this becomes the issue with Christians often. There are things that we should just have no interest in, that we should have no taste for, that we're caught up in. Why? Ought we turn our eyes for more things? Ought we close our ears to more things? Ought we just say no thank you more often? Ought we say no to that place or that situation or that conversation or even those people or that crowd or this event or that party or that get together? Ought we rather seek the Lord in wisdom and say, how might I use my time and my energy so that I avoid being a part of a friendship with the world? Commentator Robertson says, this cleavage between the wayward, wicked world and the kingdom of God is of utmost significance. The Christian has to learn the secret of living in such a worldly atmosphere without being contaminated by it. This is that classic phrase of in the world, but not of the world. The time comes when a choice must be made between friends. For that sort of life in the world becomes incompatible with friendship with God. One must make his choice. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. One cannot run with the hare and the hounds. The devil makes no objection to such a double life of hypocrisy. But God does. The devil loves for you to be hypocritical and keep trying to uh, justify it, but God hates it. God is gracious and forgiving to sinners who repent, but God has no mercy for presumptuous sinners who defy his kindness and keep in touch with the devil and his circles of evil. You adulterous people, James says, friendship with the world is against God. Who are your friends? What does your friendship or relationship with the world look like? Do you draw lines? Have you said no? Have you turned your eyes? Have you worked on this? You know, several years ago, had somebody new at church. I mean, several years ago, so don't necessarily go thinking that it's you. Had somebody new at church. I was trying to get to know them and 
maybe a little bit similar to what John said. And I was out and about and I ended up meeting somebody that said they worked at the same place they worked. I was excited. I thought, man, I'm networking here. We're gonna connect two pieces together. I said, you know such and such? They said, oh yeah, man, I work with him. I said, that's great, man. He's coming to church now and been coming to church for quite some time. The Lord's really working in his life. And they went, I think we got, I think we got the wrong person. Maybe they just got the same name. I said, well, maybe. Is it such and such that lives such and such and is married to such and such and got those kids? Yeah, man, that's him. Yeah, that's him. He's coming to church now, man. He's really getting, really getting focused. They're like, huh. I don't think he's a churchgoer. I don't really think he has anything to do with God. My heart sunk knowing that James is more aware of the state than we often are of double lives, double minds, double speak. That who I am on a Sunday morning can often be very different than who I really am. Adulterous, friends with the world, and opposed to God. Something else that's happened quite a bit over the years for, for me and for us and for our church is we have tried really hard in and around schools and neighborhoods and communities to try to reach people, engage them, form a friendship, share the gospel with them, invite them to church, only to know that somebody else that they're already in a friendship with who supposedly is a part of a church has been doing the opposite work. Not deliberately, but they have. For everything that we've tried to say that God does, the person who professes to know God has been proving the opposite. Friendship with the world is against God. But James is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his half-brother. And James knows, James knows, James knows to not leave it right there. Look with me, if you will, at verse four. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, that this matters to God? And in verse six, we have one of the best statements in all of the New Testament. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James chapter four, verse six is a direct quote from Proverbs chapter three, verse 34. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And while one might sit here and think that the church is just full of being dogmatic and heavy and hard, that God is uh, calling us adulterers and sinners and speaking about how ugly sinfulness can be at times, which he is at times, God is not only that. And if you're here today and you're listening, I hope that you will not tune me out quite yet. Notice that even James, who often drops the hammer, who has used such strong language, even here today, James speaks up and reminds us that the heart of God, who is the judge of all, is also full of grace and mercy. I thank God that today we opened our service with Psalm 145 that says he is slow to anger, he is rich in love, and he is good to all. He gives more grace. 
If you're here today and you're thinking, hey, I have been adulterous spiritually. Hey, I have been an enemy to God. I have been a friend of the world. And even now I feel like that. That is a struggle of mine with my actions, with my relationships, with my friends, with my speech. I feel like this is speaking to me. You need to hear the first words in verse six. He gives more grace. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died to save to the uttermost. It is true that nobody is too sinful. Nobody has sinned too much. Nobody is too far. Nobody is too bad. There is always more and more and more grace. I heard a story about a painting of Niagara Falls, right? And Niagara Falls literally flows millions and millions and millions and millions of gallons of water regularly, right? One of the hugest waterfalls in the world. And somebody painted an awesome picture of Niagara Falls and they entered it into a contest and they, perf- and they forgot to put a name on it. They forgot to put a name on it. And so they said, what are we gonna name it? And they came up with this name for the picture of Niagara Falls and it said, more to come. Millions of gallons of water just keep coming through Niagara Falls. And in the heart of God Almighty, there's more grace to come. We may get our hearts right today and cling to Jesus and yet walk out of here and before 3 p.m. feel like we already are distracted, lose our temper, say something that we wish we hadn't said, Get distracted. And we need to know that in the heart of God, he gives more grace. When God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross, he took the sins of the whole world, past, present, future sins, and he killed Jesus in our place. And if you will believe him, turn from your sins and cry out to Jesus, he will forgive you of all of them. He gives more grace. We are to hear James recognize that there are problems within the people of God when there's fighting and selfishness and all of that going on. And we are not to deny it and make excuses. We are to say, God, forgive us of this. Get my focus off of me and get it back on you. Lord, be gracious to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the phrase that you give more grace. Father, we need grace. We need forgiveness. And we do not want to be friends with the world. We don't want to oppose you. Father, help us now. Help us to be honest. Help us to not be calloused. Help our hearts to not be hard. Help our hearts to be soft. Father, work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.